electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Scott, absolutely. It's great stuff. We really appreciate it. Some fascinating comments. You heard Steve Weiss there speculating about Warren Buffett and Boeing. I was looking at Caterpillar's market cap. It's only $50 billion today. Welcome to The Exchange, everybody. We are covering this liquidity story big time for you this afternoon. There's a grab for cash by companies to get through coronavirus. And the big question is whether financial markets have enough of it. Now you've seen this major move by the Fed. Uh, Bazooka was an understatement, as you heard Steve and Ron just discussing there. We want to get some immediate uh, reaction here. Bob Bassani is down at the New York Stock Exchange. Bob. And, of course, the question, and we're just looking at each other down here on the floor, is this the opening salvo, as I said before, from the Federal Reserve? But take a look at the uh, S&P 500, uh, because that's what the traders watch. 29.50 is where we were, oh, about 12.53 or 12.54. We are, as you can see here right now, 26.16. So we have moved uh, 68 points in the S&P 500. That's rather remarkable. That's more than 700 points uh, in the Dow Jones Industrial Average just in the last seven or eight minutes. Uh, I don't know if you can put up some uh, stocks that have been down that suddenly went positive. Johnson & Johnson, for example, uh, was, was down the mid-single digits uh, at 12.50. Uh, there it is. Just went positive. Uh, United Technology was down mid-single digits. Uh, it went positive just a moment ago. I saw something go, uh, go by on the tape there. Uh, so it's really been quite a remarkable turnaround in the last few minutes. But a lot of damage has been done. I just want to show you the sectors here. Effectively, this is a takedown I talk about every day where almost every sector was down 8% towards the lows of the day. So it doesn't matter whether it was healthcare, and consumer staples or tech or industrials. Everything was down 8%. Now look at the changes here. Yes, everything is still down 3 or 4%, but that's almost a 5% move that we've seen. In th- this has happened in the last uh, 10 minutes, the change that we've seen. Uh, a lot of people are asking me about bottoms. I spoke with Art Cashin this morning, who's recuperating, sends his best wishes. He is looking at his number, 2351. That was the December 24th low on the S&P 500. We are well off of that, but we were approaching that earlier in the day. And interestingly, that would be a 30% decline, which would be a typical recessionary decline in the S&P 500. 30% is fairly typical for most recessions. The Great Recession was 50%. That's a real outlier. Finally, I want to show you some emerging markets, ETFs. It's been, you think it's ugly here? We've seen almost 20% decline in some of these other ones. Uh, Brazil, emerging markets, um, MSCI, Mexico, Africa. These were all down much more than this just 15 minutes ago. Finally, I know there was concerns about what's going on here and the stimulus program. They were not impressed with Christine Lagarde this morning at all. The European stocks closed right on the low. She talked about bond purchases, cheap loans, but no rate cuts there. Guys, back to you. Okay, Bob, thank you so much. And, and let's again look at the Dow Jones Industrial Average, only down 839 points right now. At the lows today, we were down 2,220 points. So this is a huge turnaround. It comes after the New York Fed said it is injecting tons of liquidity into the market. And that came just minutes before the 30-year bond auction that just went off. Rick Santelli is out at the CME. Rick, how's it looking? You know, I I will give this auction a D. D is in dog, but that certainly doesn't give you all the information on this auction. Let's go through it. 16 billion 30-year bonds, the longest maturity. 
The yield, 1.32. Where was the when issued market? 127 plus, 128, 128 plus. It was right in that area. So we tailed about four basis points. That's why it received the D. But in a Dutch auction, with this kind of volatility, it really isn't surprising. If you look at the rest of the metrics, it looks pretty good. If you look at the bid to cover, 2.36 above average, 2.3 is 10 auction average. 69.5 on indirects is the best since January of 18. Now, the 8.9 on directs, that isn't a good number. That's basically almost half of what the 10 auction average is. But think about the big institutions that aren't in accumulation mode. They're in liquidation mode. So that category you would think would be lost anyway. So all things considered, the dealers take about 21.6% of the auction. I was shocked. I thought they'd end up taking more. All things considered, it had a pricing problem. That's been the talk of the day, wide bid offer spreads. Why should it be any different on a 30-year auction? But the other metrics were pretty good. And we've gotten some buoyancy here as equities, of course, have moved off their lows. None of this is easy. And I'd be lying if I told you these markets are operating perfectly normally. But nobody would expect them to. The real issue is, is that everything has moved and we have a major repricing all on quicksand. So far, at least in my opinion, seen a lot of these over the years. It's nothing to brag about, but it's as orderly as I would have expected. Kelly, back to you. Okay, Rick, uh, stick around if you would. I want to bring in Steve Leisman by phone as well. Steve, I don't yet see the full announcement from the New York Fed, but it seems like there are several pieces of it. There's the uh, half a trillion dollars of, of liquidity. There's also expanded asset purchases. Are those one and the same? Can you give us all the details as far as you've learned? No, on, on you're right. Doing? There's uh, two separate things going on here. One is $60 billion. Let me find it here. The announcement is on the website of the uh, New York Fed. So it's keeping our reserve management purchases for the monthly period. Uh, beginning in March. That's going to be spread across a, a whole bunch of spectrums, a whole bunch of uh, securities there. Put that to the side. And I'm sorry to tell you, Kelly, I think you had it only half right, even though I still can't actually believe it's this much. But they're going to offer, and I'm reading directly from the release, the desk will offer $500 million in a three-month rebuild operation. Uh, it looks like that's today at one thirty, And then it says tomorrow the desk will offer... $500 billion in a three-month repo operation, and a five that's a trillion and a half. I, I hate doing the math on TV here, but they just laid this on us, Kelly. It looks like it's a trillion and a half of repo, from what I can tell. And then wow. keep going here. Um, it looks like an enormous amount of money, and this comes after senior executives I spoke to this morning, Kelly, were expressing deep concern about the operation of the Treasury market, um, about spreads about the differences between the futures and the um, uh, and, and the cash market, and a lot of concern about dislocation. And I, I did, I was able to confirm that the New York Fed was aware of this. Um, they could not, they would not talk about it, but I was able to confirm they were aware of this. And so this must be in response to what we heard from senior executives in the bond market about the way things were trading, about possible and wide dislocations. I've heard some very ugly terms used about how the, the, the bond market was trading over the last several days. And we'll see if this solves that problem. But I was hearing from executives, Kelly, was a call to dust off some of the crisis-era programs. I do want to read you, though, one section from this release, Kelly, which is a little bit unusual. I don't know. I can't say this was done before. But it says here, 
pursuant to instruction from the chair, which is apparently Chair Jay Powell, in consultation with the FOMC. Says all the markets of some, some sort of emergency decision that was made. Um, I thought they make this whole decision, but it looks like Fed Chair Powell directly intervened in making this happen here. So, Steve, again, let me kind of summarize, make sure we're, we're, we've all got this straight. They've done a trillion and a half of liquidity, 500 billion overnight, 500 billion one month, 500 billion three month, and then 60 billion dollars of, do I call it QE? It sounds like they're buying treasuries. It, it sounds like it's QE to me. Okay. <clears throat> Pardon me. It, it, it's um, over tips, floating rate notes. They're going to buy a whole bunch of other stuff here. Uh, nominal bills, coupons. Um, the 500 billion is not is not overnight. They'll do it today. Got it. But it's a three-month repo operation. Then they're going to do a $500 billion one month. Um, and then they're going to do, let's see, a three-month. I'm sorry to do this. It's two three-month operations at 500 and one one-month operation at $500 billion. Okay. That's a trillion and a half, I yeah, think. Yeah, that's uh, huge. If I'm not mistaken, Steve, Kelly. stay right there. We're going to talk more about this. Uh, the market way off its lows when that announcement originally passed, and now it's losing a little bit of steam again. So again, at the lows of the session today, the Dow was down about 2,220 points. After this announcement, we went down to only about 700, 750, and we're back down about 1,000. Barry James is here. He's president and portfolio manager of James Investment Research. Daryl Cronk is president and chief investment officer of Wealth and Investment Management of Wells Fargo Investment Institute. Peter Bookfar is Chief Investment Officer of Bleakley Advisory Group and a CNBC contributor. Rick Santelli is still in the discussion as well. Peter, let me come to you first. What are your thoughts about this extraordinary move? So I've been hearing the same stories that Steve heard and that there's essentially was, has been dysfunction within a lot of markets. Now, obviously, the Fed's trying to address the Treasury market, but this is sort of like the legacy of the Volcker Rule where dealer inventories are just not there. The market makers that we used to see are just not there. So you're seeing these liquidity gaps that everything is falling through, Rick and Santelli the Fed is trying to fit that in. vehemently shaking his head in agreement there. Um, so you're saying this is a problem that effectively goes back a decade but became acute this week. You know, it, ironically, yields are declining, right? So it, in a way, you would expect a lot of times when there's no liquidity and yields are shooting up. That's not exactly what's happening here. So why the panic about what's going on in the Treasury market? And how is that connected, Peter, to the rest of the financial markets? Well, you really can't get more liquid than a Treasury market. And when you start to see bid and offers start to separate, it tells you that there's, there's real fear that no one is willing to step up to be that buyer to the seller or the seller to that buyer. Of even and that tells you there's stuff di- in the market. Exactly. Right? So that tells you there is dysfunction, there's panic, there's not enough capital to, to, to back these bids and offers. And again, it's it's legacy Volcker rule. You know, I don't want to be too uh, picky on these minute-to-minute moves, but one more thing before I move on, Peter, is we, we were, we're now down 1,300 points still. So there was definitely some initial relief here, but is this enough relief? This is just treating a symptom. The relief is when we get millions of tests over the next couple of weeks. We separate the healthy from the sick, and we continue this, this, this shutdown while it's damaging to the economy. It at least gets us to a, a safer place, a lot of people that then won't get infected. Okay, Daryl, let me bring you in on that. And, you know, as these markets continue to gyrate here, will this, will this big move by the Fed, you think, ultimately help to calm things down, especially as we head into the weekend, or not? Is it all going to come back to coronavirus and, want, and the public wanting more assurances there? Well, I think you're right, Kelly. You just hit on this. So this is infusing liquidity into the market and a huge amount. But it's not necessarily targeted stimulus that the markets have wanted, which is why I think you're seeing a little backup. Um, Peter's points are spot on. Yesterday, we saw a very unusual move in rates going higher 
credit spreads widening, the U.S. dollar strengthening, and equity selling off. I've only ever seen that happen two times, and it tells you there was liquidity issues mm. with the U.S. Treasury market, and therefore the Fed comes to the rescue. The only other point I'd make, too, here is, remember, the issuance market is relatively closed, if not outright closed at this point. So companies started to draw down those big lines of credits out of an abundance of caution because they're not able to access the bond market right now. They're not able to sell bonds in this type of environment or refinance bonds. And so they needed to capture that liquidity while it was available. You know, Barry, let me bring you in here because, uh, you know, you take a much longer term view of these things. I, I sort of think of you as Buffett-esque in that regard. Um, would you expect this to be the kind of of market that Warren Buffett, you know, if we're looking for votes of confidence, we've just got a liquidity vote of confidence from the Fed. We frankly kind of can't order up a a vote of confidence in terms of treating coronavirus. What do you think that, if anything, if you were, you know, Berkshire, if you're Buffett, are you looking here? Are you, like I said, Caterpillar's market cap is $50 billion. I think Boeing's down to 90 billion. There's, there's been massive, massive dislocations here. Yeah, I see a big donut and it makes me hungry right now. On one side, of the donut, things were going along great. Now we're in this hole. We don't know how big this hole is going to be, but things are going to be great on the other side because the economy is going to pick right up uh, in the sense that there's going to be pent-up demand. So what we have right now is something we don't know, how much earnings will fall, uh, how much you know the economy will slow down. But I see a big banquet table, and they're starting to put these these things I love to eat on the banquet table, and uh, I would be starting to look at what I wanted to buy uh, more than what I wanted to sell. Yes, there are some things to sell right now, but I'd be looking at that, that second move, which is what would I want to buy? What will do well after this okay. passes, as the other guest mentioned? And let me ask, as, as Rick, uh, Steve, go ahead, jump in there. Steve Leesman. I was just going to say, I, I, I don't think people should get the wrong impression about this injection of liquidity by the Fed. It's not going to solve the coronavirus. It's not going to solve the economic fallout with the coronavirus. This money looks aimed directly at a specific issue which is out there, which is the difficulty in trading the buying and selling of Treasury securities and the effort to uh, make it so that those markets operate efficiently sure. and, and are able to operate orderly. I don't think this solves any of the problems that stocks can rally or not, but to the extent that there's panic and concern about how the treasury market is trading, we'll have to wait to see if this amount of money is sufficient to solve that problem. But it's specifically aimed at one thing. So new viewers who are coming in and aren't used to this sort of thing, they need to understand this is a very technical operation, flooding of the zones, but there's enough money around for buyers and sellers of big institutions to buy and sell treasuries to make sure it functions orderly, it doesn't solve any other problem. Let me bring Rick in. Rick, it's been about 20 minutes since this announcement. And uh, like I said, a little more relief in the immediate aftermath, perhaps, than we're seeing now. But are there signs in the Treasury market? Uh, Is it too soon to tell about whether this is kind of helping to grease the wheels, so to speak? It's kind of hard to tell because, you know, in the grand scheme of things, we're talking QE. But really what we're talking about is what the Fed's doing is make sure the gears of short term, kind of like the issues of commercial paper back in the crisis. It really is more about these arrangements that have claims on Treasury securities that up until about 36 hours ago, everybody wanted. Now there's a liquidation side to this, whether it's munis, some of the highest quality fixed income products. And I think the Fed's very smart. I never have issues with these facilities. They do a good job and we need to address liquidity. 
party, where my issue is, is trying to do more. There's no capitulation this time like there was in 07 and 08 in various sectors, whether it's the mortgage sector or when Lehman went under. See, the health side of this doesn't give us that luxury. So really what I see is markets trying to tread water in the twilight zone of pricing and the Fed's trying to make that ordeal last a little longer. But until we get more numbers on Corona, whatever that is, you can blame it on politicians, on test kits, on whatever you want. But this is very hard for markets. to. It's like trying to change four tires on a car going 80 miles an hour. And the Dow's down about 1,400 points still as we discuss this. That's a 6% drop. Peter, one thing is Barry mentioned this idea of looking towards the other side uh, when we come through the coronavirus. And it's different from the financial crisis where they had this long financial repression aftermath. You would hope in this event, like you said, there's pent-up demand. People want to get back out there. It's kind of like being stuck home with uh, two kids for two years, which I know a little bit about. So here's my point. Inflation. You know, right now you have Treasury yields at historic lows, and the Fed is probably in some ways going to end up pushing them negative. They're meeting next week, April, so forth. What happens coming out the other side of this if there's any hint of supply shortages creating inflationary pressures? Well, I think you're going to see that demand rush for everything that the pent-up demand is going to be enormous, and the supply side is not going to be able to immediately step up to that. The production side, the shipping side, I mean, good luck trying to get a ship to deliver the product that you need. So we are going to see, I believe, a supply inflationary price shock that is to follow. Now, it'll probably be temporary until things sort of readjust, but I think that is to follow. The question is, do Treasuries respond to that by selling off and seeing higher yield, or do they look past to thinking that maybe it's just temporary? Sure, and uh, Daryl and Barry, I want to give you guys a final word here. Barry, I know that there are individual names you think people should buy, but broadly speaking, would you call this a market panic? I'm, I'm, I mean, do we use the word crash, Barry? You've seen a lot of these cycles. What would you like in this, too? Yeah, it's like 1987. Uh, I remember 20% in one day, so this isn't that unusual. It was about 40% in 40 days. Uh, it could be that short of a, of a decline. Uh, It would not be surprising to us that we would see some more down. I would look at, in terms of investing, things that are high-yield type of uh, bonds or high-yield, you know, highly levered companies, I would probably stay away from those. And those that are uh, definitely impacted by the coronavirus, the you know, the travel industry tried to stay away from that. But there's there are things that are just dropping down bargain, bargain, bargains. And uh, I think that uh, there's some there's some good opportunities to start nibbling. Don't go all in. Start nibbling. Daryl, last word to you. Yeah, Kelly. So what I would say is watch for true capitulation, which may be here. Part of the reason for that thought is you're seeing risk off assets, defensive assets actually sell off now. Utilities and REITs, which were Plumbing new highs literally days ago are now down 18 to 20 percent. Gold is selling off. U.S. Treasuries have come on a 10-year from 31 basis points back up to 75 basis points. Those are showing you that those risk-off assets are getting sold in this environment, which is usually and historically a good sign that capitulation is near. Okay. Uh, We thank you, Barry, Daryl, Rick Santelli, Steve Leisman as well. We'll probably hear from uh, you guys again throughout the show. Peter Bookvar is going to stay with me because we want to talk a little bit more about the banks, which are seeing a small comeback here on the back of the Fed news. It was just about half an hour ago. Again, the Federal Reserve stepping up with a trillion and a half dollars of liquidity and $60 billion of what we can effectively call quantitative easing. Let's bring in Gerard Cassidy. He's Managing Director and Banking Analyst at RBC Capital Markets. So glad you're here. Thank you. Um, What are the mechanics of this? Why would the Fed do this? Um, what are they trying to accomplish? And are you seeing, how do you think it'll play out? 
I think what you're seeing is that the Fed has to provide liquidity to make sure that the markets function efficiently and effectively. They've done this in the past, and I think you'll see them continue to be interactive with the markets to make sure that they don't freeze up. Because it's the banks who are among those that use this overnight, these repurchase operations. Is that right? Well, they're part of the process. The money market mutual funds are very big in it as well. So it's the entire financial system that are interrelated, and they have to make sure that liquidity doesn't dry up. And why would they need to go to the Fed for this liquidity? The fact that they are offering it and that that's where these participants go, where would they typically get it? Well, typically when markets are this volatile, the Federal Reserve will always come in and that's what they, they were created for, the lender of last resort. So I think the Fed is doing what it's supposed to do and if they could calm down the markets, that obviously will help everybody. One point that Peter made a little while ago is that you go back to the financial crisis, sort of hallmark legislation, the Volcker Rule, which was meant to, to make sure that banks weren't trading with client money, so to speak. But the effect of that meant that banks weren't doing a lot of trading, period, that they had traditionally done, for example, in the bond market. Um, all of the stuff that we've seen happening in the Treasury market this week, is that um, telling us that perhaps the cure was worse than the disease, or how would you kind of interpret that? It's a little too early to tell. We'll do the post-op, you know, hopefully in three or four weeks from now. But I would say this. The Federal Reserve knows that if it needs to do anything it will do it, meaning in during the crisis, it broke the rules. It did things that nobody expected it to do. And I would say that if they think they need the vocal rules suspended, they'll suspend it. So what I would say is they will pull out the big guns to make sure that this does not lead to some sort of collapse like we had in 08, 09. Right, although, Peter, those desks don't exist anymore to some extent. They, <laughs> right. They're gone. They're um, not going to get revitalized. Those on, participants on any, are gone. Right, but this right. is yeah, the side effect. What, how, would, how do you expect, so the banking industry, obviously, at the heart of, if we look at the headlines the last couple of days, it's companies like United Airlines and the cruise lines tapping their credit lines. Is that why uh, what you think the Fed's ultimately trying to do here is, yes, help trading market liquidity, but also make sure that liquidity in the in the kind of system in general, we should say, is available? In other words, how would this go from helping the banks, per se, to helping oil and gas, you know, travel industry and so forth, or will it? Well, it's certainly not going to help the fundamentals. I think it tries to help confidence in that people want to believe that the system is not going to all of a sudden, you know, collapse under its own weight. I think in terms of the companies that are tapping these credit lines, it'll be specifically those companies that may have maturities coming up this year or next, those that have immediate working capital needs, but there's still a lot of other cash-rich companies that are not going to. I mean, I'm hearing so far that while the headlines are the Boeing and some others that are tapping, most companies are not. So we'll have to see how this plays out, but that's what banks are there for. They're well-capitalized and they're prepared for things like this. I think you said it perfectly. The banks are very well-capitalized and we're seeing a re-intermediation back into the banks. Hmm. So the banks have lost out to the shadow banking industry for 30 years. So now they have the capital, they have the liquidity, and these uh, lines are set up for this very reason. So sure enough, these companies have this access, which is very good. Although the market's not getting them much of a vote of confidence. Correct. You know, Correct. It, and it, why, for example, is a name like Bank of America one of the worst performers? You know, we're used to in the past seeing Citigroup often the kind of the one that's really taken to the woodshed. Is that because Bank of America represents the broad consumer economy? Did it have exposure to some of the weaker parts of the U.S.? I, I think it's more just memory from what happened in 08, 09. And unfortunately, Bank of America was one of the be troubled banks along with Citigroup. So I think what's going to happen is the banks can demonstrate, which we think they will, that they will get through this uh, correction or this downturn very uh, efficiently and, and maybe even profitably, that they will rebound and people will reassess that the banks do have the strength and the liquidity and we shouldn't treat them like we did in 08, 09.
Yeah, and so if we take a step back, then there's the kind of immediate overnight or or term liquidity, let's say, from the Fed. There's also the $60 billion of purchases. And, Peter, this takes us back to the crisis-era playbook, and it's actually coming before they have even cut rates all the way to zero. What is in the toolkit now? How do you? Th- what does this reveal about how the Fed might be thinking about how to treat this continued uh, market sell-off? Well, with respect to their meeting next week, I, I think what we're seeing is it's not the cost of money that is the issue here. It's the flow of liquidity in different pockets to those that need it from those that can provide it. And shifting the cost of money from 1% of the Fed funds or 50 basis points or 75, that doesn't really matter. I think the Fed needs to shift to getting the money to those that need it, lubricate the uh, liquidity in terms of the, 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 the bid and the offer of these markets, and, and try to make sure that we can get to, let's just call it May or June, when this virus hopes, hopefully calms down. It's all about buying time right now. Yeah. It's buying time and to calm people down, to get us to springtime where we hope that this starts to calm down overall with respect to the virus. All right. Dow had trimmed its losses to as much as down 750. We're now uh, twice that much down, about 1,500 points. Thank you both. Uh, Gerard Cassidy, Peter Bookvar, greatly appreciate it. We have some breaking news out of Washington where Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell tweeting just now, notwithstanding the scheduled state work period, the Senate will be in session next week. He says, I am glad talks are ongoing between the administration and Speaker Pelosi. McConnell adds, I hope Congress can pass bipartisan legislation to continue combating the coronavirus and keep our economy strong. Let's stick with Washington for a moment. Joining me now is Fred Kemp. He is CEO and president of the Atlantic Council. Uh, Fred, first of all, do you see the, in a, in a deal quickly emerging here despite all of the rancor of the last couple of days? Uh, Kelly, I actually do. That was a great conversation. And and thanks for having me on. You do provide uh, light instead of heat at these times, and so it's terrific to come on. Uh, I, I do think they'll reach a deal because they have to reach a deal. Uh, and, and that really gets also to, to, to last night's uh, uh, address at the Oval Office uh, where Europe uh, gets into the crosshairs of the president. We know that we need Europe at times of crisis. In October 2009, uh, global financial crisis, don't forget the, the G20 meeting uh, where the U.S., U.K., other European allies came together, and they stopped a hemorrhage that really could have led to a complete global financial meltdown. I, I was in Europe on 9-11. Uh, I was in the Eurostar under the tunnel from, from London to Brussels uh, during 9-11. Uh, and at that time, NATO uh, triggered Article 5, its collective defense mechanism, for the first time in history. It was essentially Europeans saying, we're going to come together uh, to come to the defense of the United States if it needs it. That's the spirit of leadership we need right now. This is a global crisis. World democracies have to come together, and we're going to need the Europeans to address the financial aspects of this. So it's not the right time to, to, put, uh, to put them up as, as yeah. the problem when they're part of the solution. Fred, stay right there. Let me bring Elon Moy in. She is on Capitol Hill for us, also continuing to report on what stimulus package may be shaping up here. Elon, what can you tell us? Well, right now it looks like the Senate just merely needs more time to try to assess what will come over from the House. I was speaking to a couple of senators as they went into the lunch where they discussed 
the decision to stay in session next week in order to keep debating this. I spoke to one senator, Cory Gardner, a member of Republican leadership, who said that he actually supports several parts of the House bill, uh, but just needs more time to work through it, both with other lawmakers in the Senate as well as with the House. But the dilemma here for senators is that uh, even as they decide to stay in session and continue these negotiations, there are a growing number who are having to either self-quarantine or have closed their offices due to the coronavirus. Senator Rick Scott of Florida is the latest to announce that he's going to be self-quarantining, was supposed to have a press conference, abruptly called it off when it was determined that he had come into contact with someone who has now been tested positive for the coronavirus. So uh, these negotiations are certainly fluid. Um, this is a sign that they do want to keep working, but I think everyone was surprised by the amount of pushback from Republicans to a bill that Democrats had hoped would sail through the House and perhaps even uh, receive bipartisan support in the Senate. Elon, stay right there. I'd like to make this a little bit more of a conversation with Fred. Um, you know, Fred, obviously, I don't like when people blame the political process and say we, we can't have the partisan wrangling. Look, these people represent passionate points of view among their constituents, and there's a strong difference of opinion about the best ways to solve this crisis. Is there common ground? What common ground do you see that could shape up quickly here uh, to get something of a, almost a trillion dollars in size passed? Well, I, I think the common ground is going to come when there's more of a realization of how much community spread there has been. Uh, we've got about 5,000 tests out there. Uh, the uh, South Koreans have done 100,000 tests. Uh, the British have done 25,000 tests. So it looks like we uh, don't have as much spread as different parts in Europe, but I think we are going to have it. And I think the more that it gets into the system, that it, it's not a question of whether or not uh, this is happening. It's really a question of how far is it going to go. And, um, and, and I think as soon as that becomes clearer and clearer, you're going to have a lot less bipartisan wrangling and a lot uh, more uh, coming to an agreement. Uh, and I think the president has to lead on this. He has to say, look, and not only do we have to act internationally in unison, we also have to act together in unison. And, 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 and he has to help the Republicans find their way to this agreement. Yeah. Ilana, is there any support, uh, as you can tell, for Moving forward with something like a coronavirus czar, putting Dr. Anthony Fauci in that position, you know, having a kind of a trusted, impartial person to become the voice of authority on this and let the rest of the country know how they should respond to outbreaks, you know, figure out, you know, literally spend 24 hours in a closed room and say, how is Senate, how is the Senate going to meet? How is the House going to meet? We, we can't afford not to have these discussions underway because of coronavirus. Uh, not in this particular bill, Kelly, but I will say that both Republicans and Democrats have acknowledged that this is not a perfect bill. Uh, there's not everything that either side wants in it, certainly not as much for Republicans as they would hope, um, but that they will have to take several bites of the apple. So right now what they're focused on is perhaps using the framework of the House bill, uh, which does not include a coronavirus czar, as a starting point, try to get this passed and then perhaps come back with something else. One of the sticking points in the bill right now is how to structure paid sick leave. So everyone agrees we should have sick leave for people who have to stay home because they've been infected or um, have somehow been having to quarantine because of the outbreak. But do you do that through the Social Security Administration? Do you do that through some other separate structure? How long should the sick leave last? How much should it be? These are the details that are now bogging down the discussion, and we'll see if they can get them resolved. Yeah, I, I want them to take more of the Mark Cuban approach. He says, I, I'm going to take care of the people who work here. We'll figure out the details later, but I'm going to take care of it. Uh, thank you both. Elon Moy, Fred Kemp, appreciate it this afternoon. want to move on and talk about the airlines. They are getting crushed after the president's unprecedented European travel. 
travel ban announcement. Uh, Southwest is down about 12 percent today. United and Delta, which would be more directly affected, are both down about 15 percent. And EU leaders are slamming the ban, saying the president acted unilaterally and without their consultation. The U.S. Travel Association also speaking out against it, saying in a statement, quote, temporarily shutting off travel from Europe is going to exacerbate the already heavy impact of coronavirus on the travel industry and the 15.7 million Americans whose jobs depend on it. My next guest says the outbreak could serve as a liquidity stress test for the airlines, and it seems as though we're experiencing that now. Brandon Oglinski rejoins me. He's an airline analyst at Barclays. Brandon, who, you know, the, if this is a liquidity stress test, you know, it's not a big vote of confidence by the market. Uh, yeah, look, we, um, and Kelly, by the way, thanks for having us on. I mean, there's, uh, you know, trying to put some stability in the markets here. Uh, but, you know, for airlines right now, and just given how much they're trading down, people are really worried about liquidity. No one knows how bad travel is going to get. We just heard this week that bookings are down 25 to 30 percent on a gross basis. That's from United and Delta. Uh, but on a net basis, that's net of, uh, you know, refunds. They're actually down about 75 percent in the U.S. and They were down 100 percent in the Pacific and the Atlantic. So at this point, we're really stressing our models here. We took revenue down 80 percent in 2Q. We assume that all the advanced ticket purchases actually go away, so I have to fund working capital. What we find is that, you know, American probably needs another 2 to $3 billion of capital. We think Delta needs about two. Uh, United did raise $2 billion earlier this week. Mm-hmm. I suspect we're going to see all the big carriers, especially those with more corporate-exposed bookings, uh, needing to raise capital probably in the next few days, actually. Sure, and the 2 to $3 billion you described doesn't sound like it's, you know, that much of an amount given the numbers we're throwing around uh, in general for coronavirus. Do the other airlines have access to lines of credit where they can draw this down? Do they go tap the equity markets? I mean, what what are the, does anybody not have an option for that for getting that liquidity? Well, I mean, you know, if you look at Delta, they have an investment grade balance sheet. I think all the major carriers have a revolver of some sort uh, that, you know, they can obviously draw down that is uh, included in their current liquidity picture. You know, it's important to note United came out on, uh, I think, Monday or Tuesday. Their next CEO, Scott Kirby, said, look, we've modeled. Uh, you know, a pretty draconian scenario with revenue down 60 to 70 percent this quarter, you know, tap, tapering off to about down 30 percent in the fourth quarter, which would be really unprecedented. You know, keep in mind, uh, September 11th, revenue went down 20 percent for the industry. So this would be a really big test. Uh, but they said even in that scenario with the capital they've raised, they believe they can be cash positive by $3 billion throughout the whole course of that type of contraction. So I think it's really prudent for the boards and the management teams right now to be looking at cash. What sources of capital do we have? And unfortunately, you know, for American, they've obviously pursued a more aggressive strategy in the last few years, repurchasing a lot more stock, taking on a lot more debt. Yep. Um, so that's where I think we see the most concerns. But, you know, then again, look, Barclays and Citigroup have a big credit card relationship with them. It wouldn't shock me if we saw a few billion dollars of forward miles purchased from these banks. You know, they also have term facilities that we think they could actually stretch out. So there's lots of options on the table here. CapEx is going to get pushed out. You know, everyone's going to feel this throughout, uh, you know, the aerospace system, too. So deliveries won't happen. But I don't think any of these companies are actually going to go bankrupt uh, through this crisis. Well, the fact that you have to say that tells us just how bad it is out there. But, Brandon, we appreciate it. Like you said, liquidity stress test for all these companies. And American may be the poster child for uh, investors being upset about those debt-funded buybacks. We'll leave it there, Brandon. We'll check back in with you soon. Brandon Oglinski of Barclays. And from the air to the sea now, this pandemic has been devastating the cruise industry, too. Princes and Viking Cruises today suspending global ship operations. For more, let's get to Seema Modi. Seema. Kelly, that's right. 
Carnival announcing its halting operations of the Princess Cruise Line. 18 ships in total for about two months. This will impact sailing scheduled from March 12th to May 10th. And it follows two high-profile quarantines, the Diamond Princess off the coast of Japan and the Grand Princess off the coast of California over growing coronavirus concerns. Now, the Princess Line accounts for roughly 20 percent of Carnival's EBITDA, uh, according to analysts at Instanet. The stock, Carnival, down about 17 percent today. Experts say they wouldn't be surprised to see other cruise lines follow Princess's decision. In fact, Viking, an operator of luxury river cruises, backed by private equity from TPG and the Canadian Pension Fund, suspending all sailings till May 1st. This is, of course, a private company, but you're starting to see the fallout spread as well, Kelly. It's not just the cruise lines. You take a look at the hotel operators, uh, the online travel names like Booking Holdings and Expedia, all seeing significant losses in today's trade. I don't know if we can show the year-to-date declines for these cruise uh, operate, operators, Seema, but yeah. Norwegian's now trading at $11 a share. Yeah, that stock is... Uh, been hit really hard, not just today, but Norwegian suffering the most. If you look at the year-to-date performance of Royal Caribbean, Carnival, and Norwegian, the three publicly listed cruise operators. Norwegian's uh, down 80 percent. Year-to-date, exactly. And following that, you'll see Royal down, I think, about 70 percent. Carnival, actually, interestingly enough, despite the high profile uh, and negative attention that it's received with the Princess Line, it's uh, faring better on a year-to-date basis. All right. Seema, thank you. We appreciate it. Seema Modi. It's been a wild session here on Wall Street. The S&P circuit breaker kicked in for the second time this week that hated, halted trading for 15 minutes. That was shortly after the open this morning. The Dow was down 2,200 points at the lows. It went up uh, to a decline of about 750 after the Federal Reserve came in just before the turn of the hour with an emergency liquidity announcement. Uh, but we've slid back down now. The Dow's down 1,800 points. That's a 7.6% drop. The Russell 2000 small caps are down more than 9% today. The 10-year yield, which again, as of yesterday, was kind of uncoupling with these markets and had moved higher is uh, standing about 71 basis points right now in the wake of all of this. So it's kind of chopping around. Crude oil has been crushing, uh, crushed again, I should say. Uh, big declines across Brent and WTI. Uh, there's WTI down 6%. It's just under $31 a barrel. The industrial ETF is on pace for its worst week since uh, September of 2001 with more than 11 members down 10% or more today. That includes United Airlines, Boeing, General Electric, UTX, Delta, and American Airlines. Fast-moving news here. United's down 18%. Let's get to Sue Herrera for a news update at this moment. Sue? And there's a lot going on at this point, Kelly. Just moments ago, the announcement came that Sunday's Democratic presidential debate is being moved from Phoenix to Washington, D.C., The organizers are making the chance to reduce the coronavirus risk because Univision's moderator, Jorge Ramos, is pulling out of that debate because he was recently in contact with someone who tested positive for the coronavirus. Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau is self-isolating after his wife Sophie began showing flu-like symptoms following a trip to Britain. The couple are staying at home pending the results of her test for the coronavirus. National Guard troops a short while ago began handing out supplies in New Rochelle, New York. There's currently a one-mile containment zone in an effort to curb the coronavirus outbreak. New York's governor calls the area the most significant cluster in the country. The containment zone is set to continue through March 25th. And Major League Soccer has suspended all games for the next 30 days because of the coronavirus. The uh, league says it will continue to monitor events as it works on plans to try and resume the season. 
Just one of the latest sports teams and leagues to announce that they are either canceling or suspending because of the virus. Kelly, back to you. Yeah, their headlines are coming in Fast and Furious. Sue, thank you. And the Fast and Furious movie's now been suspended a year. Anyway, as Sue mentioned, the world of sports is coming to grips with a new reality during this pandemic. Let's bring in Eric Chemi with all the cancellations and suspensions up to this point. Eric, the, just the last few minutes, we're hearing from the Major League Baseball and National Hockey League. Yeah, that's right. So the NBA, they took the lead last night. That was followed by a host of other sports entities today, Major League Soccer, ATP tennis, college sports, and so on. They've all announced cancellations or postponements to their seasons. We've been getting a new one basically every few minutes in this past hour. These sports industries, they're massive businesses. Consider just the NBA. It brings $9 billion in league-wide revenues every year. $4 billion gets paid to the players. $3 billion comes just from its national TV rights deal with ESPN and Turner. You add in the PGA, which will have tournaments still, but without fans. Major League Soccer, they're now suspended. ATP Tennis Tour, that's suspended. That's billions of dollars more. And then just in the last few minutes, we're hearing that the Major League Baseball, that spring training is now being suspended. And National Hockey League, they are suspended. Those, those two alone, that's combined $16 billion a year. And all the major conference basketball tournaments, they were canceled today. One game was canceled at halftime oh, just about a few minutes ago. But the one big thing we're waiting for, that NCAA March Madness tournament, they have still not canceled that tournament. They make a billion dollars a year just from those three weekends. Yeah, and so now we'll have ripple on. effects back to the schools. Eric, hold that thought and stick around because the growing list of leagues suspending games or banning fans is likely to have a huge financial impact. And our next guest says... There's not even a way to quantify it right now. There's no precedent. There's no playbook for this situation. George Pine is here. He's the founder and CEO of Bruin Sports Capital. It's great to have you, George. I mean, what is business like on a day like this? It's tough right now, and it's unknown. I think in the long run, it will sort itself out over a long period of time. But in the short run, it's going to be very choppy. And the places to look first, as, as Eric mentioned, the NCAA, the NBA playoffs, the NHL playoffs, the, uh, sports that are in the playoff run, that's where the money's made. That's the most profitable time of the year. So those sports are in the toughest position. Things like Major League uh, Baseball, they can delay the season. They can add double headers. They can extend the season. But those sports that are in the playoff front, it's going to be difficult. Lastly, the local uh, people in the communities. Sure. Restaurants, bars, people to collect tickets, security. Those people are going to be hit hard, too. So it's a very difficult situation. And at least the NBA has major TV contracts. Hockey, as I understand it, I mean, they're making money from primarily – Who's in those seats? So, so losing this era could be a revenue huge matters blow. more relatively to hockey than it does the NBA. March Madness, it's more about the TV revenue. But what's interesting to me is you notice the difference between indoor sports and outdoor sports. Obviously, George was an executive at NASCAR. So NASCAR and golf, they're going to still keep going just without fans. Those are played outside. So maybe they think, okay, you're not trapped inside. So we'll see if they change their tune right, in the next couple of weeks. Think about we, I was talking to an NBA team president today. It's three to five million in gross revenue per event. So if you have ten events a night, that's thirty to fifty million. And there's about doing three. ten home games left for teams. Right, right. and then you yeah. play three games a week. That's you know two hundred million dollars out the window on one sport. Then you put in the NHL and these other games. It's a meaningful impact locally. What about the NBA players themselves? So both for NHL and NBA, this will have repercussions on their salaries for next year, won't it? It will have some impact, but I think the the, the players, the TV networks, the leagues on the on the media side. That'll get worked out. I mean, if you have a $24 billion deal, you'll figure out a couple hundred million. It's the local market, the local teams, and the people locally, they're going to get hit the hardest. Do you guys hear anything from, you know, a lot of stadiums have now been financed by municipal debt, and I just worry about if, if gate revenues there are down. And I know they typically would have offsets, but not if you're not having large gatherings of any kind right now. You know, there's, 
I, I just wonder about kind of the ripple effects throughout the stadium financing market. I think for a couple of months, I think you, you probably work your way through it. If this is prolonged, 12, 18 months, that would be different. But I think over three or four months, you probably get your way through. What about, we know, I know your kids are college athletes, one in high school about to be a college athlete. How are they dealing with this? Because you're seeing the Ivy League canceled all sports. A lot of these college football programs are starting to shut down. How are you just dealing it from it's your own It's tough. You know, the, I kids? went to Brown. Brown beat the national champion Virginia lacrosse team. My best friend's dad, uh, son, is a captain of the team. All of a sudden he gets a note. He worked all year to play on this team, and they're not going to play ever again. Right. It's his senior year. So I think what if you're a, a junior in high school who's being recruited and you have no season? I mean, I don't understand. Yeah. These things have real consequences. So, you know, having run a league before, you have to look at it from all aspects, the competitor, the state, the local government, your TV partner, sponsors, the health of your employees, the health of the players. It's a, a whole bunch of inputs, and you've got to weigh them and make the best decision so, you can. And as you guys have said, the, the, the major kind of outlier right now is March Madness. There is so much at stake here for whether they cancel. As of right now, they're going to play it, but with no, no one in the stadiums. Is Which that is right? what a lot of the conference tournaments said a day or two ago. Exactly. And then all of a sudden today it was, okay, forget it. We're not even going to play empty. And, and it's a money thing because when you think about it logically, they have a TV contract for 2032. So, yes, it's $900 million in TV revenue. But over that length of a deal, I'm sure you can figure it out. So it's balancing the desire to collect the $900 million versus the other other issues. And I guess it depends on where those losses are going to come down. Who, who would bear the losses, and is there insurance for anything like this? Well, I just think you could work it out over the course of your TV deal in the worst-case scenario, but people that are going to get hurt, all those facilities that are going to host the games, those companies that did the ticketing and hospitality packages, how does it work with the sponsors? I think it's less of an issue, really, for the NCAA and more of an issue for the people that live didn't, in the didn't, e- ecosystem. Didn't one of your investment companies have something to do with Mercedes-Benz they in did. Atlanta, and that's where the Final Four was going to be, I think, this year, right? And it's like, oh, maybe, maybe we need to go to a smaller venue. We right. don't need a football stadium if no one's coming. Anybody who's involved in the event business is going to take a hit. The question is, is it how, how pronounced is it long-term versus short-term? I just think it's the short-term hits, and really the working person, it's really going to get you – know, who's the, the security people, the ticketing Absolutely. people, the food service people, all those local small businesses? This is real revenue to them, and it's not going to be there. Yeah. Guys, thanks. Uh, George Pine, we appreciate you coming down today. Our own Eric Chemi as well. Uh, let's take a look at the markets right now because we are headed back towards session lows. The Dow's down 1,800 points or nearly 8% right now. Remember, after we triggered the 7% circuit breaker the first time, it has to be a down 13% to trigger it a second time. Uh, the S&P is down 7%. The Nasdaq just shy of that level. The ITB is the home construction ETF. You might think it would do better with lower rates, but it's on pace for its worst day since the housing crisis. Down 11.5% right now. Our Diana Olick is in Washington with more. Diana? Kelly, several things weighing on the builders today. Mortgage rates fell to a record low last week, but are now moving up again as lenders try to deal with the onslaught of refinance demand. A pretty big jump, actually, yesterday for the 30-year fix. In addition, Bank of America downgraded Lennar, Toll Brothers, and NVR, saying that while they're still bullish on housing, quote, we would be remiss to assume no impact on end market demand from COVID-19. Toll Brothers in particular, a luxury builder, will be impacted by the massive drop in the stock market. It's already down 50 percent from its 52-week high. B of A is also tempering its forecasts for repair and remodeling. Demand and demographics are all very favorable for the builders, but there is concern that their labor force, which was already very tight, could be hit, and then possibly supply chain disruption for products coming from China. Kelly? Diana, the other question, which, you know, our Robert Frank has reported anecdotally, open house showings in Manhattan are 
falling because people are worried about gatherings. You know, my, my neighborhood ones were very busy this past weekend, but we know these things can change quickly. Any sign that the next few weekends it might be a little tougher out there? Yeah, we've been calling around to realtors all over the country. And as you know, all real estate is local. So while one agent in Texas said everything is great, an agent in L.A. said the same thing, obviously in Seattle you are not seeing that. Actually, in this area you're seeing open houses being canceled. Also, Redfin recently said that they would be willing to do Skype tours of the house. That is the agent in the house and the person on the Skype so the agent could walk around and answer questions without the potential buyer actually being there. So it's going to be changing very quickly, and it will, of course, depend on where you are. All right, Diana, thank you. Diana Olick. Let's turn to the restaurant stocks today. Darden and Brinker International are down double digits over the past month, along with the sector. Today, we had Starbucks announcing it's considering several safety measures, including social distancing by limiting seating at its stores. Let's bring in Jim uh, Ballas now. He's managing director of strategic operations group at Capital Spring. That's a private investment firm focused on the restaurant industry. Uh, Jim, it's good to see you. So uh, restaurants, the trouble is, you know, if you don't take your trip to some country this year, you might take it next year. The restaurant visits that are lost because of coronavirus, they're probably not going to get back, right? Yeah, that's true. I mean, it's definitely going to be challenging for them. What you're seeing here is a clear migration from people dining in the restaurants to people using it very differently to off-premise. So you're seeing uh, people using drive-throughs, delivery is obviously picking up. So those businesses that have those available to them as revenue channels are performing a little bit better currently than those that have dined in. Sure, and that reminds me of our last conversation about the ripple effects of these sports cancellations on a lot of the people who might have worked as security or in uh, um, concessions and so forth. You know, if people are ordering and off-prem, they're picking that food up, they're doing delivery, that's fine, but the wait staff, I mean, what happens to the wait staff if nobody's dining in, in these places? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's very difficult for them, and obviously a lot of them, uh, you know, work paycheck, paycheck, and so they're much more challenged when the business suffers. The other problem that you have to remember is, you know, the restaurant business is one of the, I think it's the second or third largest employer in the country, and so any impact to the restaurant business and the employment of the restaurant business, you know, has ripple effects throughout the economy. Tell us how your business works. You finance some of the franchisers, is that right? Or with a lot of uh, different names that we know very well, Wendy's, Panera, and so forth. Sure. Yeah, we're, uh, we're a little bit unique. So we, we both provide equity and debt to restaurant companies. And in some situations, those are independent concepts. Um, and in other situations, those are franchisees of businesses and, and some franchisors as well. Uh, so we're a, a sort of a creative financing solution for the restaurant space. I can imagine your returns aren't going to be what you thought they were this year then. I mean, whether it's on the equity or the debt side. Now, maybe the long-term valuation shouldn't be changed, but there, are there going to be cash flow issues from these companies that just don't have the people coming in the door they thought they would? Fortunately, uh, most of our focus has been on the what we call the quick service or fast food space, and uh, those tend to be faring a little bit better uh, because they do have drive-throughs, are able to close the dining rooms and just have uh, drive-through or delivery. And so because of that, you know, hopefully we'll fare a little bit better than others. You know, we got to talk about worst case scenarios now because you look at a country like Italy. And again, as Scott Gottlieb has said on our air, it's kind of too late for us to, to be like Korea. So now uh, Italy becomes one uh, possible path we go down where they've shut almost everything down except grocery stores and pharmacies. What would happen with some kind of business disruption like that in this country? Do you think they would ever shut down uh, restaurants or is there a way to make sure that they can stay open for people who rely on them, to your point, and make sure they're operating safely? You know, I would hope so. I mean, obviously, these are uncharted waters. Uh, we're in the early innings here. We don't know what's going to happen. Should we have a situation like Italy, we're going to have to deal with that when it actually occurs. But, you know, we don't believe they're going to shut down the restaurant business at this point. You know, in some ways, restaurant food is a little bit safer than what you make at home because we take so many precautions around safety and sanitation, whether it's cook, 
uh, temperatures, you know, just what the, res- the very specific policies that we have for our workers. And what for the business model? So now if I'm going to go and do pickup instead of uh, dine-in, if I'm going to try for delivery, what are some of the lasting changes you might anticipate here? Does it create different winners and losers? Do you think some of these behaviors might be sticky, so to speak? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think what's going to happen is once eventually this hopefully will blow over and we'll see people come back just like any other crisis, whether it's, you know, a a hurricane or, you know, some other uh, catastrophe. And, you know, we see restaurants bounce back very strongly. Um, I think you're going to see, you know, you mentioned a couple of names earlier around Brinker and Darden. Those tend to be casual dining, you know, with with servers and, you know, uh, restaurants with, waiters and waitresses, those are going to suffer a little bit more unless they can migrate and do more off-premise. Absolutely. Um, so I was wondering, is if, if you're them, do you try Because that food often doesn't deliver well. Yeah, you're right. Are there menu changes they could make to kind of enhance and say, look, you know, you know our menu, you love it, we're going to offer such and such tweaks right now, so if you just want to come and pick that up, we're going to make sure that it's hot, we're going to make sure that it's, you know, it travels well, so to speak. Yeah, I mean, I think already they've made those changes as the business in general, even pre-coronavirus, so... We're seeing the, the businesses tailor their menus to what travels a little bit better. Um, obviously, you're, you're seeing a lot around packaging for safety reasons. You know, we're putting stickers on bags as they go out or, you know, we're uh, recommending to the vestments that we have. They, they take certain precautions or stickers over the boxes for pizza boxes to make sure they don't get tampered with. So you're going to see some actions around delivery, um, but certainly the menu items, too, those that travel better, they're going to lean into those items. Yeah, chicken wings or something. I don't know at this (laughs) point. Jim, thanks very much. It's good to see you today. Thanks for having me on. Jim Ballas of Capital Spring. Let's take a look at some of the worst sectors in the market right now. It's not easy, uh, not hard to find them, I should say. They're energy, financials, and industrials. Energy's down more than 9%. The financials down about 8%, and industrials down about 7% today. The worst individual Dow performers are emblematic of this uh, to some extent. They include Dow Chemical, American Express, and IBM, all down more than 10%. Uh, And all 30 Dow stocks are lower right now as the index, as I said, is down about 7.5%. And as the scramble for cash intensifies, liquidity concerns are throwing the global bond markets into turmoil. The Fed announcing at the top of the hour they will begin a bond buying program. Let's bring in Ian Lingen. He's head of U.S. rate strategy at BMO Capital Markets. It's terrific to have you here. I, I you know... We just need the voice of authority about what is happening in the Treasury market and whether the Fed's announcement is going to solve that. Well, thank you very much for having me on. It is an exciting day in the Treasury market. The Fed is getting involved, but they're getting involved in a very subtle way. They were already buying $60 billion worth of Treasuries. This is simply reallocating out of bills into coupons. Now, that's important because it does suggest that they're going to probably end up doing more very soon. Explain that for a second. So this is not necessarily new money into, let's say, the economy. It's not new quantitative easing. It's just a different kind. What does that tell you about why would they make a step like this? Well, they're worried about the market assuming that when this program ends, which it was scheduled to end relatively soon, that they're over and they're out of the market. And it's very clear that the, mar- that the market and investors need the Fed to step up. They're going to cut rates to zero. They're going to do that next week. And they're probably going to announce another QE program at that point. Now, it, it, to me, the biggest question is cause and effect here. You know, we can go back to the emergency rate cut. I don't even know how many days ago. It was just last week, I think, last Tuesday morning. Markets have deteriorated significantly after that rate cut. Is the Fed creating this problem or solving it? Because some days I can't tell. Well, the Fed is doing everything that they can to buy time 
because that's really the name of the game at this, at this point. The Fed wants corporations to have access to funding. They want the banks to have access to funding. They want to provide an opportunity for the primary dealers who had been disintermediated from making markets. And this is part of the liquidity issue that we're running up against right now. They want to make sure that that money is there and the market's going to keep functioning. Have they created the problem? Not at all. What they're doing is they're doing their utmost to make sure that it doesn't become anything like the financial crisis. Why did liquidity evaporate? Because to me, it, was, it looked like Fed cuts rates, it's not enough market panics, yields plunge. And when yields plunged, like last Sunday, below 10-year below 35 basis points, you heard a lot of talk about wide bid-ask spreads, about terrible liquidity. Is, is the level related to the lack of liquidity here? In other words, people just can't figure out the prices. Or is it because the central bank is tamping down any need to trade the market because they're effectively telling you it's going to zero. They're going to be you know, cutting rates to zero and then bond buying. I would actually argue that it's a function of a lot of the regulatory changes that happened after the financial crisis. What's going on at this point is banks aren't willing to take the risk. It's not the absolute level of the move, but it was the severity. When you get a move that is that significant, people want to step away and they want to say, mm, I don't think I'm going to bid that because I don't want to be involved right now. Yeah, we spoke to Chris Repke on Power Lunch a couple days ago, and he said he thinks the government bond markets are going to be fundamentally broken. And he's a fixed income strategist guy. So this is, this is him, you know, panicking about his own future. Mm -hmm. I mean, to some extent, are these problems becoming existential? Uh, yes and no. Price action, when it exists as long as this has, becomes a problem unto itself. If this move had simply come and gone and it was the V-shape that everyone was expecting, we wouldn't be worried about bank liquidity. We wouldn't be worried about some of these dislocations in the front end. And the fact of the matter is that people are selling longer-term treasuries and parking money in cash. And that's why you see a lot of this counterintuitive price action. Yesterday was a great example. You had treasuries off, you had stocks off. That doesn't make any sense. Right. That was not the paradigm. We all talked about this in the afternoon. The treasury 10-year yield started to come back up, but stocks did not follow. Mm -hmm. And that tells you that something's broken. So what do you guys think is going on here? I think that we are very much in a panic mode. There's a premium being put on liquidity. If you look at the spreads between the on-the-run and off-the-run treasuries, that's very evident. That's a typical tell and something that we're going to continue following. There will be a point where there is a true sense of calm in the market, and hopefully that comes before the Fed. If not, then directly after it. Right. So last question here. Um, the markets looked better in the immediate aftermath of this cut than they do now. We're kind of back to the lows. Um, do the Treasury markets look better to you? Is, has, I know it's only been an hour, um, but do you think they're doing enough uh, here to really kind of help solve this challenge? Well, from my perspective, the Treasury market looks better because rates are lower, and I'm expecting negative rates in the front end of the market. I think that will be a reality for the Treasury market a lot sooner than the uh, forwards are pricing in. All right. So to you, negative rates is a good sign. <laughs> to me, it looks like, you know, the apocalypse or something. Is that where we're headed on the 10-year, too? Uh, we're going to go right up against zero. Whether that's 25 or negative 5 remains to be seen. Ian, thanks for coming in. Thanks. We Great appreciate it on a day like this, especially Ian Lingen from BMO Capital Markets. And that does it for The Exchange today. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. 
Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. 